Welcome to the Buddha Sushas Thabadin podcast. Join us for live recordings from classes, insightful talks, and guided meditations. So we've had this four-week meditation course. This is week three, uh, which, which I called the essence of meditation. Uh, so we're trying to explore the essentials, what's really essential in meditation. And we've been doing that through using this famous saying from the Zen tradition, so the Japanese Zen tradition. Uh, the Zen school is a meditation school. They kind of specialize in meditation. Uh, in China, it's the Chan school. Chan and Zen means the same thing. And they're both a corruption of the Indian word jhana, which means meditation. Uh, so they are the meditation schools. So if we're going to look to anyone for inspiration as to the essence of meditation, the Zen school is quite a good option. Um, and the saying that, that we've been looking at is a special transmission outside the scriptures no dependence on words, direct pointing to the mind, seeing into one's own true nature, realizing Buddhahood. So that's the saying. And in week one, we looked at the special transmission outside scriptures. And what we saw is that the, the special transmission is it's not something we can put into words or capture or explain. Um, but it's giving us a sense that Buddhism is a lived tradition. Um, so just because you can write something down, hand it to somebody else and they can read it, doesn't mean they've understood what Buddhism is. There's a transmission that might come through those words, but is not fixed to those words. The words might reveal it, um, but the actual transmission, what Buddhism is, is something more mysterious in a way than that. Uh, and then in the second week, we looked at the second line. <laughs> uh, no dependence on words, thank you. Uh, no dependence on words. So, again, it's like the second line repeats the first line, in a sense. So no dependence on words, because the special transmission is beyond words. And we were looking specifically at the mindfulness of breathing practice. Uh, which doesn't depend on words. We're, we're coming into the sensations of breathing. Uh, in week one, we looked at how sometimes we can have physical experiences, sensate experiences. Sometimes we can have maps, ideas about what those sensations are and what they mean. And we can also have thoughts that can take us in all kinds of places about those processes. Uh, but the mindfulness of breathing is bringing us back to sensation back into what is, uh, in a sense, direct, undeniable. Tonight we're moving on and looking at direct pointing to the mind. Uh, so mind is a translation of the word chitta, the uh, ancient Indian word chitta. Sometimes that gets translated as heart. So it's interesting, isn't it? Mind or heart. And maybe in Western culture, Western tradition, we often think it's one or the other. It's mind or it's heart. Uh, but chitta is, is both. Uh, so we might say heart-mind with a little hyphen in between, put the two together. And maybe we can't separate them out. The Buddhist tradition seems to be saying we can't 
separate those two things. So we're looking at direct pointing to the heart-mind, whatever that is. Um, so I'm going to say something about this first, how I make sense of it, and then we'll talk about how it relates to meditation. Then we'll have a break and then we'll do more meditation. I think what strikes me about this line, direct pointing to the heart-mind, it suggests that there's an indirect pointing, uh, or there's a, an indirect approach that this is trying to counteract. Uh, and I think that goes back again to this notion of words and being dependent upon words. Um, so indirect suggests a kind of mediator between us and experience. And often words are that mediation. So we have an experience, we find a word for it, and so we're somehow kind of separate if we then take the words as being the literal reality, as being the reality that we, we inhabit. Uh, do you see what I mean? So there's a kind of abstraction and a movement away from more of a direct kind of experience. So that would be something indirect. And as I said, last week we looked at the mindfulness of breathing as a way of trying to unravel that abstraction. So can we come back into uh, what we were describing last week as exquisite sensation? Uh, the sensations of the breathing are exquisite, aren't they? But how many times do we actually notice that in the day? Uh, we've got an idea that we're breathing because otherwise we'd be dead. But we don't often drop into what the sensations of breathing are actually like. Um, so a, a more direct method would be to drop into those sensations. So I think the third verse really is saying the same thing as the second verse, which was saying the same thing as the first verse. Probably the fourth one, you'll have to come next week, but the fourth one might say the same thing as the third one. Uh, so we're circling around an essential point, I think. So, yeah, I want to talk more about this direct relationship with chitta, the direct relationship with the heart-mind. Uh, explore that relationship. How do we have a direct relationship with the heart-mind? Uh, and how specifically does meditation help us come into relationship to that? So, uh, last week we heard the story of Zen master Hakuin, uh, the life of uh, Hakuin, this Zen monk from the Rinzai tradition. Today I thought we'd draw inspiration from uh, a Japanese poet from the late 18th, early 19th century called Ryokan. Uh, so some of you will have heard his poems. They're quite popular within, well, they're very popular within Japanese Zen Buddhism, but they're popular within our Tri Ratna movement too. Uh, there are good translations into English. So I'm going to read you one of Ryokan's poems and then we'll explore some of his images as a way of exploring this uh, direct pointing to the chitta. A cold night, sitting alone in my empty room, filled only with incense smoke. Outside, a bamboo grove of a hundred trees. On the bed, several volumes of poetry. 
The moon shines through the top of the window and the entire neighbourhood is still except for the cry of insects. Looking at this scene, limitless emotion, but not one word. So that's it. Uh, Riakan's poems tend to be short uh, and very simple. So there's a, a kind of simple beauty to his poetry. In a sense, it's, he's just describing what's there. Uh, it's very ordinary, and yet there's this extraordinariness that comes through it too. I think what I love about this poem is Riakan seems to be someone who can just really fully be with himself. Uh, even in the first line, a cold night sitting alone in my empty room. Uh, he, he lived as a hermit for most of his life. So he trained as a monk in a monastic setting. But then he lived alone in the mountains as a hermit, writing poetry. And he would meditate, he would have contact with a small number of people. But most of the time he was on his own and writing poems. Uh, and you get the impression he can be with himself, as I say. He's happy living that life of, of solitude. Um, but not only that, it's not, it's not like he's just a loner. Uh, you get the impression from this poem, but also from his other poems, that he's deeply connected. Uh, so deeply connected to the environment around him. The, the bamboo grove that he mentions, the uh, moonlight coming through the window, the cry of the insects. There's a, an awareness and a sensitivity to all uh, that is around him. Uh, an intimacy, if you like. Maybe that's the best word for it. A sense that he is intimate with his surroundings. So I think that's one thing. Just, just the capacity to be fully with one's experience. And the other thing I, I love about this poem is that last line. Uh, it's kind of got such weight. Uh, makes such an impression. So looking at this scene... Limitless emotion, uh, but not one word. Uh, obviously, he's found words for it. The poem is the product of his search to somehow capture that experience. But the actual experience itself, limitless emotion, not one word. Uh, I think that's fantastic. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure we can all relate to that. Have you ever had an experience where you've seen something or you've experienced something there's a beauty to it perhaps or a horror it could be either way I guess but you can't describe it uh, even to yourself it's kind of hard to describe then you try and describe it to someone else and it just sounds nothing like what happened or what you saw or what you felt uh, there's a kind of impossibility to, to capture that in words I, when I was reading this earlier I started to think about uh, the work of an a archetypal psychologist called James Hillman, an American uh, depth psychologist. And one of the first books of James Hillman's that I read was The Dream and the Underworld. Uh, has anybody read it? Oh, it's fantastic. You, you should all read The Dream and the Underworld. So what James Hillman says is that 
uh, dreams, if you like, belong to an underworld of our experience or our consciousness. Uh, but often what we do is we have a dream and we kind of pull the dream up into our day world consciousness and we try to interpret it. So, oh, I dreamt about this person and they were doing this thing and that must mean this, which must mean that I need to do this. So we kind of pull the dream out of its own environment and interpret it with our day world consciousness in relation to me. You know, this was my dream and this is what I should do about it. Um, but what, what James Hillman says is that it's actually the other way around. We should work the other way around. So we have a dream when we're in the night world, in a different state of consciousness. And after the dream in waking consciousness, we should go down into the dreams world. So we let the dream image take us back down into uh, its world, which is mysterious and all the rest of it. Uh, so I remember reading that and thinking, oh, that, that sounds true to me, that it feels wrong to kind of drag a dream into day world consciousness and try to make sense of it. Uh, so I started to experiment. What if I follow the dream image down? And then I started to think, well, isn't all experience like that? Uh, not just dreams, but we have these waking experiences, which are pretty mysterious, aren't they, when you think about it? Uh, we, we often interpret and simplify and make sense of. But if we really stopped and unraveled our interpretation, we'd, we'd find our way back into quite a mysterious experience, wouldn't we? <laughs> I was sat today in the doctor's getting my splinter removed from under my fingernail, very painful, uh, just in this really strange space with a light above me and surgical equipment everywhere and my, my kind of initial interpretation was this is horrible I don't want to be here uh, very clinical and then I thought no come on you're going to be talking tonight about the dream in the underworld Let, let's unravel this horrible experience a bit and suddenly it all kind of got more interesting and uh, yeah more uh, well you see I'm struggling now to describe what happened not that it was kind of massively profound or anything, but I, I can't put it into words because there's a different type of consciousness. Anyway, I'm losing my thread with my personal anecdotes. Um, so yeah, I, I really liked this work by Hillman because I think it applies to all our experience. Uh, can we try to relate to experience in such a way that we don't take our interpretations as literal, as literally true? Uh, they're helpful, but can they guide us back into something richer, ultimately richer? And I think Riyakan is an exemplar of that. So we've been doing that in the last couple of weeks, in fact. So meditating on sensations, bodily sensations, breathing. Uh, like I said before, we often just think we know what the breath is, but when we follow it down... And it is a following down, usually, out of the head and interpretation into felt bodily experience. When we do that, we find something very rich uh, going on. So we've been practicing that already. But I think another part of the underworld, to use that as a metaphor, 
is uh, emotion. So we are emotional beings. Uh, human beings are emotional beings. Where, uh, well, William Blake he once said, "Think of a human being as being like a sphere, and the outer shell is reason. So maybe it's about ten percent. The whole of the inside of the sphere is emotion." Uh, so we are predominantly emotional beings, with a rational part, but predominantly emotional beings. So I think when we when we drop down out of our rational interpretations, we drop into emotions, and often um, we're kind of moved by emotional currents and emotional forces that we're not fully conscious of or that, that we're not sometimes very conscious of at all. So meditation is a way in which we can come into relationship with those emotions more fully. So mindfulness of breathing, we're coming into relationship with sensations more fully. Uh, the practice that we're looking at tonight, metta bhavna, the cultivation of loving kindness. I think another way of seeing that is that it's a practice that brings us more fully into relationships into relationship with our emotions. Uh, that's, that's how I tend to regard the metta bhavna. Uh, on the tin, so to speak, it says cultivation of loving kindness. I think that's what happens when we come more fully into relationship with our actual emotional experience more broadly than just metta, including even hatred and anger <coughs> and all those negative emotions. So, the metta bhavna, let me say some things about that, and then we'll have a break and then we will do the practice. Uh, so, a quick survey of the room. Hands up if you have never done the metta bhavna practice. Okay, just. You have not? She's uh, not sure if she's done it or not. Ah, okay. Okay. I don't know the word, but maybe I. Let me quickly describe it. So it's a, it's a practice in five stages. Uh, the cultivation of metta. We could translate metta uh, without going into a whole talk about it as loving kindness. Um, so in the first stage, we come into contact with ourselves. Uh, in the second stage, we bring to mind a friend. In the third stage, we bring to mind a neutral person, someone we don't have strong liking or disliking for. Uh, in the fourth stage, traditionally an enemy, uh, or at least somebody that we have some kind of difficulty with. And in the final stage, we bring all four of those people to mind, and then we can expand out from that to include more and more people. Uh, you've done it. Okay, good. <laughs> okay. If you haven't done it, that's fine. Uh, you will try it tonight. So, um, it's, it's good to know that it's obviously a popular meditation. At least you've done it once. Uh, if you've been coming along to a tree ratna center like this for some time, uh, it's one of our two main practices that we introduce and explore uh, ongoingly. So I've been doing these practices years now. Uh, mindfulness of breathing is one, metta bhavna is the other. Um, but I think it's a practice, 
I mean, I, I can't ask everybody. It'd be nice to hear from everybody, but I think most people, when they do the metta bhavana, some people, they, they take to it immediately. It's like the practice they've been looking for all their lives. Uh, other people, it's like they're not quite sure what to do or what it's about. Uh, I think I was like this, so I would follow the instructions. Like, I'm not even sure what metta is. Uh, even calling it loving-kindness. Not, not quite sure what that is. Uh, I can bring someone to mind. Things happen. But I can't quite put it into words what's happening. I just trusted it was working, but I, I didn't really know what, what I was supposed to be doing or what it was about. Which was not, it was not bad teaching. It was just a sort of certain confusion. Uh, and to some extent, I still find it confusing. So it's not, it's not that it needed to be clear and pinned down. But I know that for people, uh, the practice often becomes problematic. Uh, I think for various reasons. And a lot of people I speak to don't do it. Uh, so I remember doing retreats where we were exploring the metta bhavana, And at the beginning, I'd ask people, how often do you do it? And a lot of people would say they, just, they don't do it anymore. Uh, that The common practice they seemed to do was a hybrid of mindfulness of breathing and just sitting. Uh, and metta like every now and again. Uh, so for some reason, it, it's a practice that people do for a while and then kind of run out of steam with or inspiration for. So I think one of the reasons for that is that there is a lot to do. So it's quite an elaborate practice, five stages. Uh, obviously, you have to be grounded and with your own experience. Then you have to bring different people to mind. Uh, then you have to kind of repeat phrases or, or the traditional practices that you repeat phrases. May you be well, may, be, may you be happy. And then we expand out to include more and more beings. Um, so there's quite a lot to do, that's the first thing. Um, I found that what works well for a short, for a period of time stops working. Uh, so it's going really well and then it kind of plateaus and then it stops working. And I have to find a new way to do it. So it's kind of constantly evolving. And I think a lot of people find it hard to really come into relationship to themselves and their own experience. So a lot of people get stuck at the beginning on the first stage and then feel like the rest of the practice is just a hard slog because they haven't even done the first stage properly. So um, that can happen. And I think the kind of net result of all of those things is often uh, people can think, I can't do it, so I won't and stop, uh, which I think is a shame. I think it's a shame because uh, it's a really effective meditation practice, but also I think it's a shame because I, I, don't, I don't believe that interpretation. Uh, so I think everybody can do the metta bhavna. Uh, I think it's just a case of finding the way that works for you. And I think that's true of all meditation. Uh, you have to make practices your own. That's why I said at the beginning this disclaimer that we need to experiment with things and explore things. 
If, if we just do it by the book, uh, we might be able to do that for years, but at some point we'll have to start discovering our way to do the practice, uh, take it to heart more. So, I'm going to make some suggestions and I'm going to repeat my disclaimer because these are just suggestions and they might not work for you. They might not be helpful for your meta practice. Uh, I, I don't in any way dismiss the um, effectiveness of the standard practice with five stages and the phrases, may you be well, may you be happy. Uh, if that works for you, that's fantastic. Just, just carry on doing it and evolve the practice in whatever way you need to evolve the practice. But a couple of suggestions, and this is how we'll be exploring the practice tonight. So the first one is keep it simple. Uh, there's already a lot to do. Just keep it as simple as possible. Uh, that, that would be my number one be my number one suggestion. So if you think about it originally, we do the practice in five stages. Uh, when the Buddha taught metta, bhavna, we heard this in week one, the Karaniya Metta Sutta, the way he describes it, it's like a, a radiation in, in all directions. Uh, it's more like a kind of attitude that perfumes everything, you could say. Uh, there's, there's this sense of others, being aware of others, being aware of all beings, uh, and, and just a sense that may they be well. So there's no kind of particular stages in bringing different people to mind. There's just a kind of sense, sensitivity, uh, an openness and a sensitivity. I think the five-stage practice is really helpful and effective because it makes it more specific. So the reason we bring a friend to mind, a neutral person and a difficult person to mind, is because they all kind of challenge us in a particular way. So the enemy's obvious. If we bring an enemy to mind, we're probably triggered into uh, some kind of anger, frustration, disappointment. It, it's trying to show us that that's in there. You know, in certain conditions, that stuff arises. And if we can see that, we can transform it. With the neutral person, uh, that's trying to show us that often we can just not be that interested. Uh, the majority, like 99.9% .9 of the world's population, I'm not interested in. You know, I have a few friends around, a few people that really annoy me and become enemies. But most people I haven't even thought of before. Uh, they're, just, they're just this grey area at the back of my consciousness. So if I bring a neutral person to mind and I see that I'm not that interested, well, can I then get interested? So it's challenging my uh, ignorance of other people that I you know, don't like or dislike them enough to care. But I can do something about that. Uh, the friend, the reason we bring a friend to mind, obviously often as a positive experience, can help us contact a sense of loving-kindness. But there's also a little challenge in there because sometimes with friends we can hold on a bit tightly, uh, want something 
more from them or exclusive from them. Uh, so each of the stages is actually challenging our the emotions that we have and and uh, trying to find the words kind of get us to rise to the challenge of more positive emotion. So I think I think the five stages are really helpful, um, but it's okay to experiment and just just do one or two stages sometimes. I would say. So don't don't get dogmatic about. I have to do all the five stages. I have to do everything in the same order. So keep it simple, and the other one is keep it playful. So don't don't like fixate. I I always fall into this trap with everything I do in life, not just with the metabarbner. I start doing it, and then I get really absorbed in it, and intensely. Uh, involved and then I lose a sense of everything else going on until somebody reminds me. Uh, so with the metabarvna, it's like I can start fixing a person in my mind and losing touch with why I'm doing that in the first place. So it's not a concentration exercise. So I think it's fine just to bring the person to mind and maybe just for a couple of minutes and then it, it will kind of fade but as long as you stay with yourself and grounded, then you can bring back, bring the person to mind again. So it's much looser. I think it can be much looser and more playful than I often make it. Uh, maybe you make it too. It might be that you're on the opposite end of the spectrum. It's too loose and you need to have a little bit more focus. You, you can work that out. So the last point is, come as fully into relationship with yourself. So yes, it's a practice that's about other people, uh, coming into relation to other people, having a sense of loving kindness for other people, but we're in there as well. So the first stage, we're, we're coming into relationship with ourselves. And I would say never lose sight of that throughout the whole practice. And there's two aspects to that. So, so don't lose connection with your own body uh, and your own sensate experience, the body and the breath as the anchor. Uh, but the other thing is, is include uh, your whole emotional experience. So we're doing that explicitly in the first stage, but in the other stages as well. What's your actual emotional response to somebody else? So if you bring to mind a friend, well, what, what does that do? When you bring them to mind, what, what happens? What is your response? Uh, do you feel in connection to them? Uh, do you have other things going on? Do you uh, not feel that interested? And it will change from time to time. doesn't mean you're a bad person if you're not interested in your friend. Uh, it just means that's what's going on. But we have to stay in relationship to that. Because um, if we don't, then we're starting off, where we're starting off from is not our actual emotional experience. So our actual emotional experience is the raw material for the practice. So often what can happen is we bring someone to mind, we don't have the appropriate response that we expect then we judge ourselves for that. 
then we judge ourselves for judging ourselves and not having kindness towards ourselves. And it just gets kind of worse and worse, doesn't it? So whatever is happening, come into relationship to that. So, okay, I'm judging myself. Can we sit with that? Uh, bringing my friend to mind, uh, I love them actually, I'm feeling love towards them, we'll come into relationship to that. I bring the neutral person to mind, I'm not that interested, well, that's interesting in itself. Let's come into relationship to that. So we're just constantly coming into relationship with what is actually happening. That's the essence of the practice. Coming into relationship to what is happening, particularly our emotional experience. The more we do that, uh, the more metta we will have for ourselves. That is, that is having metta for ourselves. And the more we can do that with ourselves, the more we can do that with other people. Uh, if we can't come into relationship with the messiness of human emotionality in ourselves, how can we offer that to somebody else? How can we come into relationship to the fact that somebody else is that too? Uh, so I would say that's the essence of the practice, coming fully into relationship. Okay, maybe, maybe that's enough. So keeping it simple, keeping it playful, and coming fully into relationship. I'll finish with another poem, and then we'll have a break, and then we'll come back and we do the practice. So this is a very popular poem by Rumi, uh, but it captures what I just said about what we have to come into relationship to like perfectly. This being human is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, still treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door, laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes, because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. Okay. So a guide from beyond, a guide from the underworld, a guide from our emotional underworld. So that's what we're welcoming in when we do the metabhavna. And, uh, yeah, preparing to welcome those things in through other people uh, as well. So let's have a break. Uh